Hello and welcome back to the Guns on Pegs podcast. My name is George Brown and I'm the editor at Guns on Pegs. I'm joined as usual by my co-host Chris Horn, Managing Director of Guns on Pegs. Right, Chris, the day this episode goes out is the 1st of September. So some lucky partridge shots and wildfowlers will be in action. It's, it's such an exciting day because obviously this year as well, uh, you know, the glorious 12th, there's a bit of a damp squib, wasn't it? Sadly. Uh, so I think this year, even more importantly, the 1st of September is kind of season proper, isn't it? And it also is the time when, you know, grouse is a, you've got to be quite fortunate to be on the grouse even in a good year. So it's a time when everyone now has an opportunity to get out. So yeah, very exciting. Yeah. And you know, I, you know this about me, Chris, I absolutely love partridge shooting. Um, so I think that's one of the reasons I always get excited about the 1st of September. And um, how about this for a seamless link? It's also why I'm so excited about this episode. Do you want to tell us about our guest today? Indeed. So our guest today owns and runs the six and a half thousand acre Stockton shoot in southwest Wiltshire. Uh, and having grown up there as a boy, he spent part of his career in the city before heading back out to develop what was then the sort of family shoot into something a little bit more substantial nowadays, uh, maybe slightly more impressive than the, the little family shoot. There's a high chance you would have read some of his rather interesting thoughts in some of the shooting magazines over the years. He's hugely passionate about shooting uh, and also very keen on looking after the future of it. So a very warm welcome to Barney Stratton. Evening, gentlemen. Thank you for having me on. Good to have you with us. Yeah, it's a real pleasure. George, so, so partridge shooting is one of your, is it your favourite, George? So you've, you've kicked that out straight off. So when we do 1st of October, we talk about pheasants. <laughs> it's your second favourite. Yeah, I mean, I love pheasant shooting as well. But, um, you know, we mostly shoot partridges at home. Um, and but I think, yeah, maybe they're a bit um, underappreciated, perhaps. So Barney, is, is therefore partridge shooting your most favourite form of shooting? Well, I... Um... It, it nearly. I mean, I I still think driven grouse does beat partridge shooting, but I think, as you just said, you have to be very fortunate or very rich to do that. So uh, we're not all necessarily in that category. And I think that for you know for for lowland shooting, uh, you know, there is nothing more exciting than sort of partridges, big lots of partridges coming over on on a nice wind I think it's just a really great uh uh it's a great thing to do I you know I I love being under them and I love uh putting them over the guns we're going to get back to a lot of parts chat in a minute but I I do have every time uh it gets around to the different stages in the season I always find myself saying oh yeah part shooting really is my favorite then it gets sort of January and I'm like I don't think you can beat a bit of pheasant shooting and you know in August you're sort of like there's nothing better than grouse (laughs) I I think it just depends on the sort of time of year just go with it (laughs) you do but you see we do partridges all the way through the um through the season and um you know, in January, you know, when, you know, they're, they're still not a particularly big part of the, uh, you know, of the bale. This is quite a large part in, on some of our beats. You know, those partridges, they are just such good, you know, game birds. They're coming, you know, right right early or right at the beginning. And the pheasants all run down to the end. And you sort of, some beater's dog gets their nose under their, out into their bush and out they come. But the partridges, they're just doing it all through the year. They're just such great game birds. It's so true. Now, Chris, before we go on, first of all, we've got to say a huge thank you to Barney just for joining us today, because uh, he's actually, Barney, you're not uh, on a stalking holiday in Scotland, so you've taken time out of your holiday to come and join us. 
Um, but Barney, presumably uh, you've had a, a fantastic day out on the hill already today, have you? We've had a fantastic day. I mean, it, the weather up here is just hot and still. And for the stalkers, it's it's a nightmare. I mean, they're, in, they're, they're really struggling uh, to find the stags. You know, they're just so far out getting away from the midges. So uh, we spent the day in about 20 degree heat scrabbling around on the side of uh, a mountain up on the northwest coast of uh, Scotland called Foynaven, which um, those who are interested in national hunt Racing will know as a famous or maybe even infamous winner of the, the Grand National, uh, named after this uh, th- this mountain. Um, the stags weren't hugely cooperative. One of my youngest sons, well, my sorry, my youngest, my eldest son was was supposed to be shooting. Uh, we didn't quite manage to catch up with one, but uh, we had the most amazing day. And I just love stalking. I love being out. I love seeing what you do. I love talking to the stalkers and. And, you know, actually the interesting thing I thought and as we sort of trundled back the Aga Cat and the stalker was a little bit, you know, he was a bit downcast, you know, they're having a tough week, uh, was, you know, normally it's my job being on that side of the fence when, you know, you haven't quite delivered the day's sport that, you know, your guests have paid for. And uh, it's fascinating. It's such good experience being on the other on the other side, you know, not that I had any problems at all. Um, with how things went today. But, you know, just being a good, gracious guest when things don't go well is so important. And, uh, you know, let me say I thoroughly appreciate it in my guests when uh, we haven't quite done, turn, turned on the uh, the afterburners on our shooting as perhaps we'd like to. And they'll say, oh, we still had a lovely day. And I think, well, you're lying toad, but I love you for it. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. It's difficult, difficult. Well, with the managing the shoot aspect, we'll definitely get back to. But uh, yes, I can imagine being the other side. So, did, so did you did you blank then today? I missed that bit. Well, we we didn't get a stag. No. Yeah, twenty degree on the west coast. Got it's warmer than Kent. What's going on this year? It's gone mad. Like it's been dry up there, and and down here it's been cold and wet the whole time. Yeah, no, it's just sort of coincided, you know, with this week, I think, you know, just looking at the uh, weather forecast, as I do obsessively, there's a high pressure sitting over northwest Scotland, and we've got almost no wind, and the midges are loving it, and, um, but it's fantastic views, and it's just wonderful being there, and, you know, they said early part of the season, you know, they've just been really misty, murky weather, so, you know, we've got glorious sunshine, you can't complain, and uh, luckily, this is a a podcast, not a video cast, so you wouldn't see how terribly red my face is, having been <laughs> been windburned and sunburned up halfway up uh, up um, uh, Finehaven Mountain. Well, Barney, after a, a hard day yomping over mountain, you're probably in need of a drink. So, um, why don't you tell us what's that you're drinking? Well. Indeed. It's, I mean, it's actually a little bit complicated because being up here, uh, the drink supply is a little bit more uh, limited than it would be down down at home. So um, what I think I'll talk about is what I would have if I, I was at home, because um, I've, I've always been one of these people who's struggled not to have a drink every day. And, you know, when we do that sort of doctor's do the uh, the medical and they say well Mr Stratton how many units do you normally drink a week and you say uh 18 you know they know that sort of 28 or 38 um but when we got to this November the, the last November lockdown I um I, I I I woke up on the morning of the 5th of November thinking I've got nothing to do for four weeks 
I, you know, there was genuinely no reason to get out of bed. I couldn't, I, you know, there was nothing I needed to do on the shoot. There was no marketing. I, there was just, you know, most people run around trying to pivot their businesses and do all sorts of stuff in, in lockdown to try and sort of keep the wolf from the door. And I had nothing to do. And I sort of tried to work out what my sort of goals were going to be for the next four weeks to sort of give myself a bit of focus. And, um, I, you know, one was to do a whole lot of long distance walks because, you know, I'm about to start a, uh, a guided walking business to sort of run along the side, the shooting, you know, outside the uh, the shooting season. And I also thought, hey, what? this is a really good opportunity to try a dry lockdown. Um, but my, and I've never done it. I never do dry January. I never do no drinking in Lent. I just can't do it. I thought, right, here's a challenge. Let's do it. But the big problem we all have, I always have had, is there's nothing I like to drink that is non-alcoholic. I mean, I, you know, elderflower and fizzy water gets me through the shooting season, but, you know, shooting lunches. But, you know, you don't really want to sit down and drink that in the evening. And I tried a number of things. The one thing I really liked is a uh, tomato juice, a spicy tomato juice made by a company called Turner Hardy, who... Um, and one of the guys, um, Hugo Hardman, came shooting with us years ago when we served, you know, as our default uh, Bloody Mary mix, a, a well-known alternative brand of um, ready-mixed. Uh, Chris is nodding on the Zoom. He's clearly a, an aficionado. And he said, I'm going to make another, I'm going to make another, uh, you know, uh, version of this. It's going to be better. And I said, OK, fine. Let me know when you uh, when you bring it out. And... Um, nothing heard nothing for a few years and then he rang me and said right i'm coming you, you we're going to i've got it ready you're coming to do a tasting and it, this it's it's really nice and um so i now uh it's i mean one thing they do they use you know um you know fresh tomatoes from the isle of Wight. you know it's just really good drink and we now stock it on the shoot and i so i sat down with a pint of chilled Turner and Hardy lively tomato juice in lockdown and I just love it and now I've actually become um, a bit of a non-drinker and I, I've rather discovered the joys of not drinking which is quite troubling at my age um, but just to reassure you and your listeners that I'm not just becoming an old prude there is actually another drink that um, I like, um, which happens, I've become a real fan of English lagers and the English uh, sort of pale ales. I just think it, you know, they just, I am so glad. I've never been a great one for hoppy beers. And I just love these light, um, pale, you know, light ales, you know, English lagers. They've got a bit of bite to them. And the neighbouring farmer, he's between our, our, all our shoots, his sons have set up a brewery which is called Blom Brothers, and they make a really nice um, lager from organic hops from their farm and probably a few others around. And I sort of tried this because, you know, like with Turner Hardy, like with lots of other brands, I love having serving brands on the shoot that have a connection, you know, either, you know, preferably with somebody I know or if it's somebody who you know who shoots, you know, we do a lot of course and press. Um, you know, uh, drinks we do. I'm trying to think of, you know, what else we do. I really like getting stuff from people I, uh, you know, who are known to me or are shooting people because we probably have 2,000 people through our shoot, what with the clay days. Um, and it's, you know, it's quite a good way of, you know, promoting brands. So 
Um, naked plug here. If there's anybody out there who who listened to this and shoots and has got some uh, brand or, or some product that you would like a bit of exposure, you know, on shoot elevenses, shoot lunch, then you know, do um, get in touch. Got to love a plug like that, George. That's impressive. Yeah. That was. <laughs> That's what the podcast <laughs> for. Do you know? Was it that obvious? <laughs> it was beautiful. It was beautiful. <laughs> These guys, the Blonde Brothers, I sort of uh, I happened to be in a pub with their dad, and he ordered. You know, he said, "Oh, have you, do you serve my son's beer?" And I didn't realise they produced it, so I'd order some. Luckily, I liked it because it would be really embarrassing, you know, if I didn't. So I said, "You know, we'll get this on the shoot." Um, so that is now our, our, you know, my go-to beer when I'm. Um, allowing myself a drink however up here in scotland we the only when my host said what do i want to drink i said get a an english lager because that's what you know i want so he only managed to find um camden um uh, which is another english lager it's fine it's it's nice the trouble is everybody else in the lodge found it um and we ran out so yesterday i went down to drop somebody at inverness airport and i went into tesco to get a replen of course, Tesco in Inverness is not exactly full of English lagers. So, but I did manage to find a Camden um, Pale Ale. So um, that is what I'm drinking tonight because the genuinely, I, there was no room in the car to bring up um, a case of um, Turner Hardy and a case of Blonde Brothers beer. <laughs> Let me tell you, I tried, but what with four dogs, two children, one wife, uh, and enough kit for one stalking weekend uh, week. Um, we couldn't get those essential supplies in, so uh, I'm enjoying a uh, a Camden Pale Ale, and it's uh, after a hot day on the hill. It's going to go down well far too quickly. Good man, it's a good beer as well, though. I like it. It so. is. Yes, Chris, have you gone teetotal as well after your your week away? Certainly not. Actually, drank a lot a lot of Greek Santorini wine. Uh, really quite nice, by the way. Uh, another little plug for for if you get hands on any of that, I didn't expect it. Really good. Uh, no, today I've got a I've got a slow gin, and I never I never mix slow gin with anything. It's usually just on its own, mainly you know sort of in the field type scenario. Uh, but today I've mixed it with tonic, just because I didn't want to just sit here with a slow gin. Now the slow gin I have is particularly special because it arrived at my door. Uh, in a little bottle, and on the bottle it says the Wiltshire Liquor, uh, Liquor Company Blood Orange Orange Liqueurs. Now it's absolutely <laughs> not that, <laughs> um, uh, uh, but this was a lovely gift from George. So I'm actually drinking George's slow gin that he sent me. George, tell me about what I'm drinking. Shit, um, I wish I could. Um... <laughs> um, so I mean, it's funny how these things happen because. Um, not only am I drinking one of Camden's other beers, or it's my sort of reserve drink today, I'm also drinking some of my own slow gin. But the trouble is, is that I'm not very good at labelling when I make it. And so I couldn't tell you at what point in the last three years those slows were harvested and the gin was made. All I can tell you is that the slows came from my dad's farm in Hampshire and that uh, it was probably the 2019 brew but i couldn't be certain and a, um, a pre-lockdown <laughs> brew yeah yeah so and and uh, chris as you'll know um i'm moving house next month uh, leaving london and heading out back out to the countryside and so i've been sort of looking in all the nooks and crannies of the flat and i found another kilner jar uh, that i have failed <laughs> to bottle 
with slows, all the slows still at the bottom. Yeah. Yeah. And it's equally unlabeled. Um, and again, it's uh, vintage unknown. Um, so uh, I thought, well, I'd better bottle that because it's easier to move things in bottles and kilner jars. Uh, and um, I'll give it a go. So that's what I've got today as well. And I promise you, this is a total coincidence, by the way, anybody listening who thinks this is a setup. <laughs> it, genuinely not. Um, I only found it today. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm enjoying it. Um, I've never left. I mean, I don't know how, how long the slows were in there for, but definitely longer than they usually are. And I was a little bit worried it might have gone nasty, but it's actually really good. I was wondering this, like with, with the slows, can, can you leave them too long in the bottom? Because I left mm. mine for like, two and a half years accidentally uh, and they seem fine. Can it be left for too long? Is this something you know about, Barney? No, I I, I am not a, a slow drink drinker. I've, I've never really liked it, but I'm feeling hugely uncomfortable with this slow gin conversation because uh, my number two, who, who my co-host on the shoot, is uh, called John T. Dampney, and he makes his own brand of slow gins and other liqueurs, which I haven't plugged up till now. Um, <laughs> and now that we are talking about slow gin, I he's going to absolutely kill me, and he's six foot seven. If I don't mention that he because that he makes uh, a, a, a wonderful range of slow gins under the name of Jam- Dampney's. Um, slow gins and other things so uh i thought i'd better get that one in quickly before uh a he hits me and b uh to let uh you know to let you guys know that no it's not my area of expertise the one thing i hate about slow gin is when people put it in champagne um on, <laughs> on, on shooter levenses but that's another story well, I can I can absolutely vouch for for Jonty's drinks because I've known Jonty for years uh, because we both play for the Hampshire Hogs Cricket Club, um, and uh, I can tell you that at six foot seven, when he comes charging down the hill at Warnford, he uh, put the fear of God into batsmen. But uh, thankfully, his slow gin and other liqueur making skills are rather better than his bowling accuracy, which could be a little bit erratic. But yeah, his they're fantastic drinks. They're really good. The rhubarb one uh, is very popular in our household. So I've, um, ju- I've just Googled it. Remarkabledrinks.co.uk. Damp needs remarkable drinks. There you go. No, another glug, <laughs> problem. Glug, 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 glug. <laughs> <laughs> um, but on, on the note of slow gin and tonic, I don't think it's the sort of thing that people mix that much. Uh, and it's really good, and I've never really done it. I just never really sat down and had slow gin and tonic. I would just usually have gin and tonic, but double up the amount of gin essentially you'd put in it because it's essentially half the strength, and you get lots of good flavour then, and it's really good. So yeah, there you go. Right, moving on. I'm very glad you're enjoying it, Chris. Right, okay. So we're all well lubricated, I think it sounds like. So um, time to offer out some dubious advice. Um, this is Barney, the uh, section called Whose Bird Is It Anyway? Uh, and it's the, the the part of the podcast where we ask our listeners to send in their shooting quandaries and queries and dilemmas. Uh, and we try and offer them some advice on it. So this one comes from somebody uh, who we're calling Clarence. And Clarence writes, We have a rough shoot in the People's Democratic Republic of Yorkshire, covering approximately 3,000 acres. We release a modest number of birds each year with the aim of creating a hard day's hunting for guns and dogs alike. We venture out in pairs and and on an average day, we could cover eight miles and the bragging rights for distance covered are often more hotly contested than bag size. On to my dilemma. This year, I helped the keeper with the birds and a friend slash rival gun 
has asked where they were released. Do I tell him where the birds roughly are so he can potentially get a bigger bag and fewer miles, or do I send him in completely the wrong direction and allow him the pleasure of a very long armed dog walk with the all-important distance bragging rights? So just a, just a little bit of information here. 3,000 acres is a big patch of ground, as you'll know, Barney. But um, I just thought for people who want to get a kind of picture of how big that is, if it was a circle, it would be about two and a half miles across. So it's a big bit of ground. And how many birds are they releasing? Well, he doesn't say. But it but can't be many. A modest number. So Barney, if you released a, a modest number, you have to think back a few years. If you released a modest number of birds... <laughs> <laughs> on three that <laughs> on three thousand acres, and you were sent out to go and find them. What are your chances? Well, indeed, I think you know one of the points I would uh, I would make, and I, you know we may even cover this later in the podcast, is that uh, pheasants have this innate ability to just not want to stay around where they're released. I mean, as soon as you let them out of the release pen, they will go down every hedgerow and just do everything they possibly can to get as far away from that release pen as possible so i think for a start you know it's you know the information where they're released might not necessarily be uh, that useful but i th- personally i think you know I, I think anybody who asks that question you know it's like when people ask me how many birds i release you know it, it happens surprisingly often i mean it used to be the absolute no no you never asked people how many birds they release it's, you know, it's like saying how much money they earn and I, you know, I think you know, asking them where they release them is, you know, is sort of in the same category. So I, I would tend worse. to think that you need to lead him on the, you know, the wild goose chase or the proverbial wild pheasant chase for as a as a punishment for that sort of temerity. I'm absolutely with you. Uh, yeah, absolutely, one hundred percent behind you, Barney. I think he's basically trying to cheat, isn't he? Whether it's whether it's going to work or not is slightly irrelevant. It's the the attitude is give me insider info. It's like insider trading. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's you know, it's a cad's game, isn't it? He wants to go out, shoot all the syndicate's birds, not have to walk very far, just by asking a couple of angled questions. I think I think there's punishment. We need to get back to the sort of fines episode uh, and uh, and dream up a fine for him. <laughs> yeah chris you're absolutely right not only do we need to look at fines but i also think that yes he should give the wrong information and the wrong location send him on the wild goose chase but also should give serious thought to replacing all of his cartridges with blanks uh so that uh even if he does come across the birds he inexplicably misses everything <laughs> so so basically we've, we've neatly summarized it that don't ask how many birds someone releases. And if they do release birds, don't ask them where they release them. <laughs> what, what, what amuses me is that do you th- I'm sort of beginning to think that George's suggestion of replacing his cartridges with blanks is going to be his default answer to just about every whose bird is it anyway dilemma. I think he's hit on a, uh, he's hit on a gold mine. Well, it's that or the, it's that or the, subtle, the, the quiet black powder cartridge just to scare the shit out of someone as well. <laughs> I love dropping one of those in when people least expect it. (laughs) Probably shouldn't do that, but it's funny. You can probably get confetti cartridges, can you? Must be able to these days. You could load your own, couldn't you? Load your own. Yeah. Right, so uh, we've we've got this new feature uh, called Unpopular Opinions, which debuted last time, I think. Uh, And and 
I think it's a bit of a hit. We've had a few in since the last episode, and this one comes in from someone we'll call Rudy. He says on a on a syndicate day, we've had some good fun with each other with matters tweed. What do you make of the opinion that too much matching kit makes you look like you have all the gear, no idea? Barney, over to you first. Well, <laughs> you've asked the wrong person because I love matching tweed. We have to, we've just taken delivery today of our second lot of um, estate tweed. We do a sort of summer one now. Um, so uh, I, uh, I've just got the bill from uh, Charles Gale tailoring to fit out all our keepers in a, in a lightweight summer tweed. We also have a winter tweed. Um, now, but what I was always told, the essential uh, requirement is if you are you know, if you are the boss, you must never wear a matching tweed cap because that makes you look like a keeper. This is very good advice. That might be the first time this series we've dished out advice. Oh, sorry. Was I supposed not to be dishing out good advice? I'm, I'm, I'm familiar with this segment. <laughs> no, we, we like good advice. But you're absolutely... On, uh, can, I, can I caveat this whole thing with estate tweeds are definitely not part of All this right. conversation. They are very much acceptable and encouraged. Uh, I think I think that's great. I think it's it's the sort of Billy Bunting turning up on his own in full head, you know, cap, uh, jacket, trousers, or breeks or whatever. Matching tweed is what he's getting at here. Yeah, I think it's it's an interesting one because I mean, I find myself in a bit of a quandary because I love tweed and I love the the, the idea of having a fully tailored, proper shooting suit. You know, a waistcoat, jacket, coat. Um, interesting what you say about the hat, and that's an interesting point. And but my, I do also find myself wondering when you see somebody in the full get-up, if their underpants are also made of tweed. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I also take a great pleasure in wearing as many different kinds of tweed as I can on a day. I have been known to wear, you know, three or four different patterns at the same time, and I like that too. Yeah. So I don't quite know which side of this fence I come down on. Okay, so Barney, if you're going shooting in somewhere else, do you wear the estate tweeds or do you don something else for the day? No, I wear I wear estate tweed because I, you know, I, I get my... I, I'm, I'm one of these kit nuts. I just love different sorts of shooting kit jackets. So my uh, shooting coats are sort of designed, you know, by me. They've got pockets in the right place and I'm just so anal about it. So I wear those um, and I'm, you know, I have to say what I like, just uh, maybe I'm not answering the, the question in the light-handed, light-hearted manner I should be, but I like someone who turns up in a in gaudy tweed because it differentiates them from the other guns who are just wearing the regulation shuffle and, you know, and, and, uh, and wellies. You know, I think there's, there's too many guns just come in rather sort of boring uniform you know the chelsea life jacket the shuffle jacket over the top shuffle coat over the top you know someone who's different someone who's making a bit of a bit of an effort now i love it i i i I want more of them on my shoe i'm so with you on that barney so with you oh this is brilliant because this is exactly why this this feature has made it into the podcast he thinks it's an unpopular opinion uh well, he's well. He's actually saying that this is his opinion, I think. But uh, but the the point being that it divides opinion. I know exactly what you mean. It depends what that tweed's like. I don't know if you remember a few years ago, Holland Holland did like a sort of almost black and white 
uh, houndstooth tweed, which looked like a bit of a tablecloth. Anyway, I bought the breeks. They're pretty obnoxious. And I get all the comments about looking like a chef when I wear the breeks. <laughs> but if you were seen in the breeks uh, and the coat and the hat, then it, you would look like, I don't, I don't know what they were thinking at that point, but you'd look absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it, does, it does depend on the tweed a bit. <laughs> I do think that unless you're shooting grouse and, or maybe like early season partridge to an extent, but I think that, you know, the louder the tweed, the better, really. You know, I I I, I like them interesting and can, colourful. Can I just add a a, a little um, adjunct to that? I was talking to the stalker today um, on on the estate. They have quite a an interesting tweet, quite a lot of red in it, and he tells me that it was designed by Coco Chanel, who was having a dalliance with the um, the owner back in the twenties, and he got her to design the estate tweet. Now, how cool is that? That's pretty that's, cool. That's ridiculous. <laughs> Very cool. Right. So I think we've come to a pretty solid conclusion there, which is actually, I don't know what the solid conclusion is. Um, <laughs> we like tweed. We like tweed. Wear what you the want. The solid conclusion is literally do what you like. That's what makes shooting. That's what makes shooting great. So, yeah. Great. Okay. So Rudy and Clarence are now members of the most noble order of the garters, as is Barney, of course, and will shortly be in receipt of their very own set of the Guns on Pegs podcast shooting sock garters, which of course go with any tweed. Um, they do, Well, that's the whole point. They are garish. They, you won't find a tweed they actually go with. <laughs> so if you two have got an unpopular opinion or a shooting confession quandary or query that you'd like us and our guests to help you with, and you want a set of garters, drop us an email to pod at gunsonpegs.com. And if we read it out uh, in one of the future episodes, you'll get some garters. It's interesting that you've gone click there, because on my uh, running order here, it says drinks refill. <laughs> it's just psych- psychological, psychotic, no, whatever it is. Anyway, I'm going I'm to trade the rest of this uh, slow gin neat, because I haven't got another tonic with me into my glass and just drink it neat now George enjoy it as it was supposed to be enjoyed and I'm going to get into my beer in a minute when I've finished off the last of this slow gin right so Barney um we've got you on because you um you know about partridges and I you know I have a bit of a think before we do these recordings about things that we'd maybe like to ask and the first thing I wrote down is I don't really have any questions I just want to talk about how much I love partridge shooting but then I gave it a bit more thought and and I thought so I think one of the reasons I love partridge shooting is that when it comes to driven shooting in much of the country, partridge shooting was really the mainstay until people learned how to rear pheasants effectively and so on. Um, but in this year's game shooting census, we asked people if which they prefer, partridge or pheasant shooting. And the result was about 70-30 in favour of pheasants. Uh, so I, So the question I have for you is, do you think that people don't give partridge shooting the respect that it deserves? Uh, well, I I mean, I suppose they probably don't. I, I mean, I think uh, one, th- one observation I would make is that, uh, there, and I don't want to come over as being, um, as being, being a bit arrogant here, but it's quite hard to do. You, you need the right country, the right topography the right drives to show partridges well they don't necessarily show themselves well in the wrong uh, the wrong environment so 
Um, you know, maybe that's why a lot of people have not experienced good, should we say good or fun partridge shooting? There are lots of different ways of doing it. But, you know, if you're just putting a few in with, you know, with some pheasants or you just have blocks of game crop and you've got some rather tame birds that just get up at the end of the drive in one huge lot and sort of swoop over the guns, you know, yeah, that mightn't be uh, that exciting. But, you know, I think if you do it well um, and you put a bit of effort in, just presenting the birds well, which is, you know, they, they, they are just the most amazing flyers um, when they're given the chance. Then I think it really does, um, you know, they you know they show themselves really well and present really exciting shooting. We're, we're definitely seeing a lot more mixed days, pheasant and partridge bags on shoots than we right. used to see. The, a, shoot, a shoot would either be we just see a lot more straight pheasant shoots with no partridges, but they a lot of those shoots seem to be putting down a few partridges in amongst the pheasants. But I suppose what we're getting at here is September, just straight partridge days. And that's where we definitely see less demand on guns on pegs for that sort of stuff than you do for a January pheasant day. But I think the sort of September partridge day needs to be thought of totally differently to sort of partridge shooting where you shoot a few, few partridges on an actual day. And that's the bit that I just, when you're on it, and, you, and it's at a time of year where you can't shoot pheasants, it's just absolutely awesome. And in the sort of topography that you're talking about and where you are, Barney, that's the bit I think is just absolutely awesome. I just don't think enough people actually even do it or give it a chance. Do you know, Chris, it's really interesting. When I first started doing commercial um, days oh, 20 plus years ago, you, we were just starting to do on the family days some, um, uh, you know, you know, partridge drive, you know, with the red legs, you know. So this was sort of mid-90s we sort of started doing it, and they were sort of good fun. And when I started doing it commercially, I just could not get anyone to come shooting in September. You know, clearly we had, you know, a, yeah. a lot of, um, you know, dates that we could have shot. But everybody wanted to come when, they, oh, I want, you know, when the clocks have gone back, when there's a bit of frost on the ground and all this sort of stuff. And... What we get now are people who just love the different type of shooting that you get with partridges, particularly September, October. You know, you can do it in shirt sleeves. You know, we have lunch. You know, one of the things we developed um, early on was we do lunch up on top of the hill. So even if the weather's a bit iffy, you know, we've got all the facilities that enable that and do it comfortably. People just love, absolutely love that sort of part of it. And, you know, you, these birds go from a really, you know, maybe the first couple of times through, you know, they need a bit of educating, but they learn really quickly. And I think a lot quicker than pheasants. So, you know, by week two of the season, um, they're all go flying really, uh, you know, well. I mean, they're coming over in sufficiently big numbers that you can pick and choose, you know, you, there will be, you know, high birds, medium birds, or if you're having a poor time or you quite like that stuff, there are always, you know, a few lower ones. But, you know, they fly so well from the off. So, that, you know, they make such sporting um, quarry. And, you know, the other fun thing about it is when you get the big lots of partridges, you know, coming over, as they do, you know, they, it does take a bit of while for them to get a bit split up. But you get these... Big lots, and it's 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 intimidating. You know, one of we had a novice gun 
once who um you know we had a minder looking after him on an early september day and you've got these big lots coming over and he just couldn't get his gun off you know there were just so many coming and he said it god he said it's like driving into an empty car park and trying to find or decide on which lot to park it <laughs> and we all do it don't we we end up parking miles away from the exit <laughs> and so you know that is the sort of you know, that really gets your blood going. You know, it's not like it's, OK, we all like the single high solitary cock pheasant coming out with everyone watching. Yeah, you know, that's a you know great sort of shooting phenomenon. But, you know, coveys of partridges coming. You've got to pick your bird. Um, you know, you, you know, this beautiful sunshine. You've you know, you everyone's relaxed. A lot of cold beers at Elevens is it's just a brilliant day day out so i think you stumbled across something here because what you're saying is that you've got a lot of guns who come to shoot with you who love september partridge shooting but you didn't at the start and there's a lot of other guns that go to some very well-known shoots for september partridge shooting but what i'm saying is when we look at it on a data level on guns on pegs a lot with a you know masses of people it's still not that much demand so what I think's happened is that when they've had really good times and people like you have sort of drawn them into this and got them excited about it, they end up loving it. So essentially what I'm saying is I think there's a lot more people out there who don't realise how much they'd love it if they went and did it. Abs- yeah, uh, you know, absolutely. And, and as a slight aside, I think it's a bit like, you know, the simulated game days. I'm going off piece, but it's yeah. a similar thing. A lot of people, when, they just don't realise how much they enjoy it when they until they come and do it. And I think that you know you, yeah, so you, you know you, everyone thinks it's all about pheasants, but it ain't. There's clays, there's partridges, there's loads of ways of um, having fun. And I think one of the other things that that maybe people don't realise is that you know when you see some partridges coming through in a mixed drive, it's very easy to to sort of just think, oh well, it's basically just a smaller pheasant. But actually, partridge shooting is a completely different beast. So given that there are probably some people going out in the next month or so on their first ever partridge day who've maybe done a fair amount of pheasant shooting and shot the odd partridge here and there as part of a mixed day, what would you say the specific challenges for anybody heading out on a proper partridge day are? For the first time, the car park scenario has got to go, got to feature again. I thought that's absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yes, I mean, I think I think there's that, um, and you know, there's, there's something else that I mean, it's you know, with partridges too. You, you know, in the old days, we shot them over hedgerows. I, you know, you probably still do in 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 on your place, George. I imagine you know, you know, that's a great way and it's a great fun way to do it. And the fun there is to slightly, you know, because. They don't necessarily fire as high as pheasants. You know, you know, there are some, you know, partridge shoots that show very extreme partridges. That's great. But, you know, they don't fly as high. People are prepared to shoot them lower, generally, than pheasants, um, because traditionally that is how it was done. But I think that, you know, if you are one of these people who's just worried about how high the bird is and you only want to shoot stuff above 40 yards or, you know, you've got your sort of set parameters about high bird... I think the fun thing about partridges, but I've sort of slightly bent people's ear in the past when, you know, it's maybe it's a bit of a flat, warm day and they're not zipping like they could do with a bit of wind. I say you've got plenty of time to shoot them well out in front. And the good shot is not the one who can shoot a 40-yard partridge over his head. It's the guy you can get a right and left and land them in front because that's how it needs to be done in the old yeah. days. And yeah. people just get too constipated. They just can't <laughs> That that is a fun way to shoot partridges, and whether you're in Hampshire and you've got your 
barrels resting on the top of the hedge and you resolve not to shoot behind. You just can say, I'm only going to shoot them in front. You know, even in our Wiltshire Downs, you know, just it's a it's a quarry that you can shoot much more like grass and and test yourself against that. You know, good guns will be able to get that right and left and land in front. You know, they can also shoot the high birds overhead. You know, don't just be the sort of guy who only will shoot their, you know, that type of shot. You know, experiment. And particularly if you've got bigger groups, you know, packed in you can, you know, you can shoot wide ones. You know, you know, there's so many different, you know, it's not like, you know, your neighbour and you have got to sort out whose bird is it? Whose bird is it anyway? Ho, ho. Uh, <laughs> you know, you, you, you've you got in the, in the coveys a lot more different types of shot if you choose to take them. Yeah, I, I tell you what, I've got a... I've got an aim for this season now, which is uh, right and left land them in front. That is... Yeah. But but it's easy to see why. If if you only really shoot pheasants, and the majority of people who go shooting really only shoot pheasants, predominantly anyway, uh, that if you then do go on a partridge day, it's kind of like when you go on a grouse day for the first time, you're like, do you really want me to shoot in the floor out in front? It's alien, isn't it? The first time you do that. Uh, and so to come to a partridge day and then shoot in a different style, it's the same scenario. You're just not really used to doing it. So if you've been lucky enough to shoot throughout August and then you rock up to a partridge day in September, you're going to be shooting right and left out in front because it's just it's second nature. But if you only ever shoot sort of 40 yard pheasants over your head, it's definitely going to be a challenge that you're going to struggle with. Yeah, definitely. I also think that partridges are deceptive, aren't they? Because they look fast but not, yeah. aren't necessarily as quick as a well, uh, Okay. And now, I, I'm just going to... I think that is a slight canard. I have watched lots of drives with pheasants and partridges going at the same time, and I would say they are they fly at the same speed. I think it's a myth. Okay. I'll, I will take. I will power to your superior knowledge on that. Yeah, I think it's a myth. What, what um, I find interesting is when I'm on a sort of, you know, mixed drive, and the partridges come through, and they're quite zippy, and you're sort of... It energizes you. Your swing is more active. Your mind is more uh, cottoned on and, and locked on, I should say, to them. And then you get this pheasant come lumbering, you know, like, you know, you've got the Spitfires. <laughs> now you've got the Blenheim Bormer. And you think, oh, God, I've been nailing these zippy parches. You know, this is going to be just too easy. And two barrels go off and it lumbers off, you know, maybe with a twitch of the tail. <laughs> Because people think that the pheasant, you know, is is slow, whereas actually, relative to the partridge, uh, it's it, it's quite, um, you know, it's, it's the same speed. So we actually find when we're doing mixed drives, sort of November, you know, on December, the partridge all zipping, the guns are all tuned to that, and you get the pheasants at the end. They can't hit the pheasant. They sort of even though they think they're easier targets. So, Actually, to be able to switch from one to the other is a is quite a skill. Do you think that when a partridge is flapping away like mad, it makes you think it's much faster? So you swing faster, you maybe shoot better on partridges. I think this is I'm saying this because this is what I think happens to me. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I I just think that I just think that because of that nature, you, you actually do what you're supposed to, and you end up shooting better on partridges than you do on pheasants. Because because too many people line up with a pheasant like that, as exactly as you say. Just go, oh, this is doing all right. And then miss behind, miss behind, always. There's definitely something about that kind of noise that their wings make that makes my heart go all funny. (laughs) Gets me so excited talking about it. (laughs) Especially after last year, it was so crap. It was like so quiet. I mean, obviously quieter for you, but I mean, 
uh, uh, than than a normal season, Barney. But for 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 those of us that don't shoot quite as much as you do, I didn't get out enough, and you get even more excited about it, talking about it now. I mean, actually, interestingly, because we you know we started you know first well first of September that you know we got September and October in on the partridges. Okay, we missed November. Um, you know, we don't shoot much in January because our partridges are you know certainly commercially our partridges you know are you know, we don't know what we'll have left. So, I mean, actually, last year, you know, if you if you come partridge shooting, you know, in September or October, you would have had a lot more of your season, bizarrely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's true, actually. Um, so, question for um, people, again, for the, the people who are maybe heading out on their first sort of partridge-only day, um, what load would you recommend, cartridge load would you recommend for good but not, you know, extreme partridge shooting? Oh, God, George. Um, <laughs> you said you like kit. I am not the person. I mean, look, twenty-eight grams of six, thirty grams of six. You certainly don't certainly don't need anything more. You know, you don't want to be you know blowing them up. I mean, I personally quite like. I've started quite like shooting with small balls. So you know, first in the last year, I used a four ten, which was great for the first. You know, we have a quite a few family days just to kick things off, get everybody in the swing. And I love using a 410 and it worked really well. And then when they got flying a little bit better by mid-September into October, I got horribly shown up. So I sort of uh, might go to something a bit stronger. But yeah, so I'm just going to try a 28 ball this year. So actually, it's quite good fun, you know, again, to go down a ball or size or even right down a ball size. A 410 will kill a partridge. Absolutely, um, you know, absolutely fine. Um so you can sort of, you know, play around and have a bit of fun on on that score if that's how you, you know, that that that's your game. It's an interesting angle that I, I think um, certainly with with partridges, I find that without sort of getting gory about killing, but I, I do find that because it's a sort of you know not quite as big a bird, not quite as beefy as a as a pheasant, they you don't you don't prick as many. They end up sort of folding up quite nicely. It makes you sort of feel better about your shooting uh, co- compared to pheasant shooting sometimes. And I suppose that lends itself to a smaller bore as well, um, in in uh, in that you uh, you're not sort of doing as much damage and you, and you'll pull them down. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I you know I think one of the things again about shooting partridges, you say that um, you know maybe slightly going back to the previous question that because you're pretty much just shooting, you know, there's one body as it were. You know, you, with a pheasant, you've got the head, you've got the wings, you've got the body. You end up sort of shooting at the back part. Your eye, sorry, I should say, instinctively picks up the back part of a pheasant. And that is where you will sort of yeah. tend to be trying to shoot them. Whereas, you know, you should be just concentrating on the head. And then if you're slightly behind, well, you know, it doesn't matter. It's still going into the body. Partridges, to, you know, your point, Chris, um, you know, it's a much more compact thing. And that is what you focus on. Your mind is just totally focused on that, that, that you know, shall we say, killing zone. And therefore, you're much better able to get the, the shot on, onto it. Uh, you're not distracted by a long tail and wings and, uh, and, and others. It's more like a clay pigeon in that respect. I, I'm glad you said 28 gram six as well. I'm with you on that, yeah, just yeah. in the case anyone was wondering. <laughs> <laughs> so um, have, you, have, you, have you shot partridges abroad? Have you done the whole sort of Spain, Morocco, that sort of area? Yes, I, um, I I go to Spain pretty much every year. I had a great friend, uh, Javier, I won't even try and pronounce his surname, 
was actually coming over to shoot with me on um, on the second. Who, when they started bringing the Spanish partridges over to the UK for the first time, uh, he was the sort of front man. And I'm going. I'm trying to think when that was. Probably ten years ago. Um, and we got chatting, and I said I'd always love to go and shoot to Spain. I'd look around Spanish shoots, and the problem with Spanish shoots is they just do the numbers are too big. You know, they start at 400, 500. And dare I say it, they are pretty rapacious at, um, at, at, you know, at overage. I mean, there is no mercy. You know, not only do you pay individually for every bird over your 40 or 50 or 80 or whatever it is, you know, your allocator of the day, but, you know, your secretario is, you know, is, is counting it. And, you know, it's, it's, you know you, there's no way out. And they'll just keep flooding these birds over till you're sort of uh, bankrupt. <laughs> and um, Javier, you know, I, I said this to him, and, I said, oh, and he said, well, I actually run a shoot, and, you know, we will do smaller days, um, and, you know, we'll do it English style too if you want, you know, to shoot good birds. And so I started taking a day with him every year. Um, and if we would do 200, 250, um, and he would do a mixture of, you know, higher drives, or he'd do what he called Spanish drives, where, you know, they shoot them more like grouse. And, you know, the first year I went out, I invited a bunch of friends who've got sort of shoots in Exmoor, and we never get have a chance to get together in our game season. So going out in February was just brilliant. And I was really worried that, you know, they would only shoot at the really high stuff. They loved the more, what he calls the traditional drives, you know, where, you know, they came at you like grouse and you sort of shot into the ground in front of you um, because it's a, you know, very testing, challenging target. And, you know, we could do decent bags, no overage. Um, you know, these Spanish birds, I have to say, I mean, it's a whole different topic. I don't think we've really got time to cover, but I think they fly fantastically well. I mean, they're a sort of slightly different bird to the ones we get from the French game farms. But, um, you know, they've got, you know, we used to have them at, at Stockton. Um, do, you, do you put the transport? You don't you don't put down Spanish partridges anymore because I've seen them on. No, no. I mean, I miss them, but you know, we could only buy them as pulps, and our whole system is reared to doing our own. Okay. And uh, they were just, you know, they were, you know, post Brexit and the pound crashing, uh, they became really expensive. And to be honest, not many, not enough of our guns noticed the difference. I did, the keepers did, um, but it was just too expensive our diversions. But. Going back to the Spanish shooting sheet, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I love it, and they do it incredibly well. And even if you go, I'd be slightly sort of dismissive about the sort of the bigger shoots, but you know, if you've got the budget, you know, it's just brilliant shooting. They do it really, the whole thing so well. It's just such a, uh, you know, a, a great uh, day out. You know, the weather's usually great. The food's fantastic. Um, you know, they have some great drives and. Uh, so I've done it there. I haven't been to um, I haven't been to Morocco. Um, I think that's yeah. Um, I might plead the fifth on how that works. But um, and I mean I think the thing about Spain, you know, is they have lots of different practices there. So you know it's well worth getting. That's why I'm so fortunate with Javier because we talk a lot about how you manage the you know the shooting. You know wh- how you release. Of course, there's different releasing practices there that you know, you wouldn't be allowed to do in the UK um, or you shouldn't be able, shouldn't be doing in the UK, shall we say. Um, 
and some shoots are more conservative about that than others. So, you know, you've sort of got to know whether they're going to be coming out of boxes, whether they were released the week before or two months before. Yeah. yeah, and they do vary hugely. They seem to be a bit more open about it now. They're sort of, they'll say, you know, more like a traditional English shoot uh, when they're sort of telling you about it. But I think you sort of, I think when they say released patches, what they often mean is released the day before, not out of a box which is the difference between our released, which is released a few months before, which is quite, quite different. So just a little tip to look out for there. I'll keep asking questions if you're unsure. Are you going to have a special section on the Guns on Peg Spanish shooting page for um, the different categories, the releasing um, policy? <laughs> yeah. Well, that it, and as you say, like these guys think it's perfectly normal. It's fine. It's just the way we've always done it. Whereas we turn our nose up instantly at that as a concept. Uh, just because that's the way we don't do it, uh, which is, again, interesting in its own right. The number of conversations I've had about topping up, um, and I won't bore you with all of them, but you know, I've had the odd person talk about, shoot, shall we say, fairly well known for doing it. And um, they... <laughs> Uh, and they say, well, of course, I'm never going to go there. You know, it's English shoots. And I say, well, of course, you know, fine, you know, I'm fighting, I'm not going there. And then I say... And of course, you know, if you ever got invited shooting in Spain, you'd turn it down, wouldn't you? And they go, well, no, 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 of course I wouldn't. Why would I do that? And I say, well, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but, but Barney, you sort of touched on this a little bit uh, in terms of the, the releasing side of things. But um, I mean, we on our family shoot at home, we made this, the switch to focus on partridges a few years back. And it's been it's been fantastic for our little family shoot. But I also know that the challenges of looking after partridges are quite different from looking after pheasants. So um, for anybody who's not sort of familiar with with the management of a partridge shoot, what are the challenges of, of running a shoot like Stockton, both in terms of like the pre-season stuff, but then also on the day? Yeah, no, um, good question, George. Um, I mean, I think the the most critical thing we've found is that you need to know which part of your shoot, if any, they like to stay on. So we shoot over six and a half thousand acres, as Chris said, at Stockton. We know that one beat of that, they just don't really like. They never have. We can't really work it out. Why? My father said in the days of wild partridges, graze, they never did as well on that side of the valley. You know, the north facing south side looks the same to me. But we know on the, you know, on the north side, south facing, all the farms down there the parts just hold we put them out in august they'll still be there in january if they're not shot so once you sort of have confidence that that you know that you know your ground that well then you know actually the releasing is it's it's so simple i mean i'm actually moving increasingly moving away from releasing pheasants i mean to release a thousand pheasants you need you know you've got your, your release pen it costs a fortune to put up you know, your keeper then has to go there morning, you know, dawn and dusk for, you know, six weeks, you know, from end of June to, you know, middle of August, going round the pen, putting the birds in. As soon as you let them out, they all seem to bugger off. You know, partridges, you know, you put up, you know, uh, some, you know, s- s- sections. Um, you put one, you know, you put a, one lot in there for um, two or three nights. Um you open it up, let them out. You can then maybe come back a week later. You put another thousand in there, 
uh, open up the pen the next night, you know, the others are still hanging around, boom, you know, they're off there, you know, they're out of the pen, okay, you've got to have, you know, we need to put watering and feeding stations down the maze, uh, or the game crop, which is almost always maze, and then, you know, they're, they're out, they're going, you know, they're, they're, they're released, infinitely easier than pheasants. I mean, the one problem you can have, and we're obviously finding it this season, is is with your harvest, because obviously we are releasing on the side of the, you know, uh, you know, on the edge of um, arable fields. You know, we don't have grass, and in fact, they probably don't do that very. You know, they don't particularly like grass, in my opinion. You know, I think they do better on arable farms, but others might have a different experience. So this year, we are, um, uh, you know, it's all going to be a little bit later because harvest is later. We're just going to have to work around that. You know, it might be we don't shoot some drives for you know the first part of September until they've had enough time to settle down. But once you've you know once you've got them out, they look after themselves much better than, than pheasants. You know, I find driving them, you know, it's it's a different challenge. It's a lot you, you need to have keepers who really know how to drive them. You know, once you've driven them a couple of times, they get really wild. And by October, certainly into November the beaters are not allowed to have you know, orange flags. They're not allowed to crack them. They're not allowed to make any noise. You've got to have various parts of the line appearing over the skyline at absolutely predetermined times so that you don't spook them and send them back. I mean, they're an incredibly game bird at the way they they fly. They sort of get wild infinitely quicker than pheasants. So you've got to sort of get that, uh, that sort of knowledge of how to drive them uh, worked out amongst your beating team because you know, it, you know to optimize them. You know they are more influenced by the wind, so we just look. You know all we're interested when we're looking at a weather forecast is what's the wind strength and direction for the week ahead, and that determines which drives we can do. You know you know you can't drive them to any good effect into the wind, so you've got to um, have the wind across. You might be able to get the odd return drive coming back into the wind, but uh, the wind is critical. And one thing that I, we never have fixed pegs on our shoot. So I will put the guns out for every drive, depending on how I see the wind taking them. And it could be, you know, a couple of hundred yards different, um, in you know, depending on wind direction and strength. You've got to have that sort of innate knowledge and feel as to how the drive is going to go on that wind on that day uh it's you know i find it is so much more exciting to me as a as a host to put on a good partridge drive on a windy day than it is a pheasant drive so, you know the pheasants will fly pretty much the same route you know they're going to go to where they want to go to partridges will just take the wind and go and they don't really care where they land I'm probably not answering. I'm, I'm off on a ramble here, George. So you can always edit it out. I'm not answering your question, but I mean, it's you know, it's a fascinating part of it that um, you know we you can drive them off, you know, um, you know, the edge of you know farm over a river over a road. They don't care because they're birds that will fly back to the drive. They're, they're birds that fly. Okay, so pheasants only fly as a last resort sort of defense mechanism and each time they fly they have an attack of ptsd and they need counseling and it takes them you know weeks or days to get back into that wood and you can only probably fly them you know five six ten times in the season before they either get tired or bugger off partridges you can you know they don't mind where they land 
you know, they'll let the wind just take them because it's a matter of moments to fly back to where they want to be. So you've got to realise that that's how they work and you've got to sort of put your guns, you know, in the right place accordingly. Otherwise, you know, you, you can get caught out. I forgot what your question was. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think you've answered it brilliantly because actually, you know, um, everything you said rings true from to, to, to how things go at home. And one of the things that I think makes them such an interesting quarry is is the fact that they can be influenced by the wind and that they're you know they're very rarely flying in a straight line even if they're curling they're very rarely flying in a sort of steady curve they jink and they dart and it it, and it can be completely different on two different days and you can shoot the same drive three or four times and you get a completely different experience every time it did make me laugh when i was was driving back down to home uh before recording this uh i was coming down the m11 and a pair flew straight across the m11 as i was there you know lorries and everything didn't seem to mind going back to wherever their home is for them quite amazing oh yeah back in the day at home when the shoot was run on a much grander scale and they used to shoot sort of 200 odd um, there was a drive where they would drive them over the A34. Really? From one side to the other, yeah. It, it, what, it's fascinating what you were just talking about, Vardy, because it reminds me back to the, the days sort of pre-Guns on Pegs. The, the, the shoot that kicked off Guns on Pegs that made it all happen was a partridge shoot in, in just outside Cambridge. And the sort of wind you're talking about it caused havoc. But actually what we found there was, because it was totally flat, it was the supreme high-pressure days that... That with the sun that caused more trouble uh but you're blessed with a bit more topography so you can sort of get them off the ground a bit i think but uh that that was always really tricky but then also the management side as well you'd lose lots of parches to being hoovered up for whatever vegetable crop they were doing the middle of the night the night before without telling you uh which you just don't have with with pheasants but i was fascinated that you found on the whole uh, many advantages over pheasants. I didn't. I wasn't expecting you to say that. I mean, actually, one thing I forgot to say on the management side. It's it's very interesting. Is um, and you touched on it with the um, the cropping. Is for us cropping really makes a difference. Where you what winter crop you have really determines where the partridges live. So if you have stubble, that's optimal. Stubble is number one. Yeah. Now they're doing this greening, you know, um, vetches and stuff. You know, that's done lightly through the stubble. It's just fantastic. They love it. You know, rape, they like seconds best, although they will bloody eat it um, at this time of year, just it's coming up. Winter corn, they don't like. Grass, I don't think they're particularly keen on. We, um, and so every year, your drives will vary depending on what crop is alongside the drive as to how long they will last through the season. So... Um, you, we look at the cropping plan that farm produce and we know what sort of season we're going to have or which drive is going to, to work well uh, you know, through, you know, through into December and January. But in, yeah, in terms of, um, you know, of parches against pheasants, I mean, you know, one of the things we find is that we get a really good return on partridges. I mean, and I'm not boasting, bragging, whatever, but our, we get high, consistently high 40s returns percent return on partridges um even though we do it in quite a big way and you know, we absolutely are not topping up just in case anybody thinks that really helps pheasants it's it's way you know it's it's way below that so you know we just find you know you know dare i say it, commercially it's a very different game to you know a, a pheasant shoot that is getting sub 30 percent returns and you know isn't shooting them until um 
you know, till much later in the season. It makes all the difference, doesn't it? Your your whole approach to partridges in general on your shoot, if you're getting those sorts of returns, you're sort of enjoying it. It becomes much more pleasurable. If you're if you're if you're getting sort of twenty percent return on your partridges, then you've got to start asking why you're doing it. Yeah, indeed. So you've alluded to it once, and we can't sort of go through a whole podcast on partridges and not mention greys, because everything we've talked about to, to, to this point is is red legs. Uh, yeah. But but that's I suppose mainly because we just don't really see them very often. Do you, do you, do you have any at Stockton? No. Um, there, you go. there you go. We don't. <laughs> and uh, in the in the early days, I tried very hard, and we got the game conservancy. Uh, Francis Booner was doing you know, his his research on how you could foster, um, you know, chicks raised in captivity onto you know wild pairs that hadn't bred, and we. You know, we did all that and we tried really hard. Um, unquestionably, I think when you've got a highish volume of red legs, it doesn't help the greys. I think that they just don't take disturbance. You can drive greys once or twice. And we, when we have had wild cubbies, as we did back in the day, you know, you, you might inadvertently get them into a drive and they would fly over the guns and probably not even get shot. But you probably wouldn't see them again. Um, and I, you know, it pained me because you know, obviously, it's an iconic bird, and da 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 da. And I was somewhat relieved when Mike Swan of the Game Conservancy came round because we, you know, I, I was using him to give me ideas as how we could help on the greys. And he said, "Look, you know, because my our bit of land is quite open downland. You know, it used to be good grey partridge country, but my father planted up a lot of woods and trees." He said, "You know, these just not grey countries anymore. You know, they don't like it where it's you know it's too wooded. You know, they." They like hedgerows. It needs uh, to be, you know, relatively open. So, um, you know, we don't have wild ones. Um, I have never tried releasing them because all that I hear is that they are not the best. You know, they don't fly very well. Um, and, you know, because they are much more contour huggers than sort of valley crossers, if you know what I mean. And, you know, they don't hold. So we get the odd cubbies that come through. A couple of neighbours uh, release them through all good reasons. And we see a few of theirs every year, but they don't hang around. So I think that, in my view, unless you're actually going to have a dedicated grey partridge farm, uh, it's going to be really hard to have them either alongside you know a red leg shoot or to have them as their own um you know in their own right as a commercial shoot there's a there's a whole podcast in greys alone so i think we'll leave it there but it's 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 very interestingly put and i think unfortunately yeah so many others are seeing the same thing um uh obviously why why we don't really see them at all yeah i mean i've, I've had the opportunity to shoot greys a few times and every now and again like you barney we get a few, we get a cover or two at home but just like you, they go over the guns once. People go, what the hell's that? That's not oh, okay. And they don't get shot at, but we never see them again. Yeah. And I think maybe in the last 10 years, I think maybe we've shot one. <laughs> well, I, mean, I think you're the exception. In my experience, whenever they fly over, people go, oh, what the hell's that? And they go bang, bang. And having missed everything else, they then get the greys. <laughs> <laughs> Always sod's law, isn't it? It's like the grey hen on a um, grouse drive. <laughs> Uh, right, Barney. Um, final question on on partridges. Um, where would you say you've experienced the best partridge drives? And of course, you're allowed to say your own. 
but but we want we want others other than your own obviously <laughs> that's the point <laughs> where would you go partridge shooting other than stockton i don't get out much okay there was something we might come to on the next sections um <laughs> so i don't really get the opportunity to go very far afield to shoot partridges and as much, not because I haven't got any friends, although that is perhaps true, but um, <laughs> who own good partridge estates, but I just can't get away in the shooting season, uh, yeah. you know, first and foremost. But what I would say, in my opinion, and I, you know, it is an opinion, you know, there are certain parts of the country that do good partridges. And I think you're pretty much looking at the South Downs. You're looking at our part of Southwest Wiltshire, you know, what we call the, you know, the three... We used to call the three valleys, the Chalk Valleys, you know, the Nadder, Wiley and um, and Chalk Valley particularly. You know, part, you know, Exmoor, you know, they do it well in their own way, parts of Devon. You've clearly got the Yorkshire, um, East Riding of Yorkshire, you know, Water Priory, Raisthorpe, you know, they're clearly great yeah. you know, ground for partridges. And then you, you know, get up into the borders where, and up into, you know, up into Scotland, up into... Um, um, God, what was the place I drove past yesterday going to Inverness Airport? Calder. You know, they they have, you know, great partridge shooting on the moorland edge. Um, you know, if you want to go and shoot high partridges, you know, go and do it there. Um, and I'm probably missed somewhere, so there's probably going to be lots of um, angry uh, uh, responses. Saying, oh, you know, you missed, um, you know, Rutland. Or, and, and so what I would also say, so what I haven't missed, sorry, and I'm going to come back to, you know, is East Anglia and Hampshire, which... I would say I think a lot of guns in a commercial level, George, I don't know what you think, or Chris, what you think, because obviously you have more experience of it. But I think, you know, people have slightly moved away from shooting partridges over hedges, my opinion. You, you know, tell me what you think. You know, because you can go and shoot slightly higher ones, you know, off the downs. Um, uh, and I think that's a mistake, because as we said earlier, I think you can have great fun shooting partridges over hedges. You can. Well, you've made me. You've made me very happy because uh, my dad is a Hampshire Wiltshire lad, and my mum's from Norfolk, <laughs> and so most of my shooting has been in those two places, and that's where my love of partridge shooting comes from. I think, um, and yet yeah, mostly, you know, over high hedges or shelter belts. We still see huge demand for partridges. Well, general East Anglia shooting, but so much partridge shooting, um, and I think part of it is because those shoots are per bird a little bit cheaper, uh, which which draws the attention in at the start. But there's still a lot of people going to do that. But and, and yes, they have you know there's there is a demand for all the high stuff, uh, or for uh, maybe better, you know, higher birds than the head the, the head choppers as it were, the traditional partridge shooting, I think it's the way we always refer to it as. Um, but there's still a lot of people that do it. And it, I think I think if if I remember rightly, East Anglia is still the third most searched area on guns on pegs regionally out the UK, which which amazes me every time. In a good way. Yeah, I just but but because you expect people to want, you know, the topography of all the other areas that you just mentioned. So, okay, the last section, one last day, where would it be? Obviously you don't get a chance to get out much, so I think I know what's coming here, but, <laughs> but <laughs> one last day, where would it be? Who would you who would you go with? What tweaks would you make to the normal day that you usually have for your desert island shooting? I you know, I just don't get to travel around the country and do the different sorts of shooting that, you know, I, that you do, Chris. And every time I listen to this podcast, you go, oh, yeah, yeah. God, do you remember that amazing day we had in Lancashire? And, oh, do you remember that amazing day we had in, in Devon? Oh, I remember that day in Scotland. I'm thinking, you know. Um, 
How do you think I feel? I have to listen to it every week. <laughs> you and I both. Um, so, you know, I, I mean, as much as I love driven grouse shooting, you know, it's just so special. I do a day's driven boar shooting in Germany. I just love that too when, when something happens. But I just don't have much of a chance to experience uh, shooting around the country. You know, I get quite a few really good invitations which I turn down because you know I just have to be you know at home hosting and that's my job and you know that's the dependence so most of my shooting is just with um you know local friends who I've always shot with in um you know normally in January when the pressure is 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 off and as much as I like that you know it, it you know the I am coming back inevitably to shooting at home and you know, and I love, I just love running family days at home. I, you know, I'm, you know, I love what I've done with our shoot. I love, you know, the drives that we can put on. I love, you know, I just love being out there. And particularly when it's a, you know, a family environment, you know, I've got two sons, I've got four brothers, you know, they've, you know, they've got eight children. So, you know, we fill the line before we even start. So, Quite a lot of our, our days around Christmas, we'll have 20 guns. And, you know, it's just great laugh getting everybody in, uh, you know, under some birds. And we can, you know, we can do it. I think it's one of the supreme challenges of, of the day. But, you know, if it was my last day, you know, it would, you know, it would be a slightly more select team of guns. So, you know, having 20 is great, but I am totally exhausted by the end of the day. Um, and. <laughs> You know, and we you know we would do all the you know all the drives I wanted to do you know that worked at that time of year, and you know uh, you know September October when we've got parches would be different drives to what we have in in you know in in December January, um, so it slightly depend on the time of year. But you know, as you guys have often said, you know what is great fun is when you have a weekend party and you know you have your best mates who just really chill and relax and enjoy it. And you know one of the I'm slightly digressing here, but it's one of the things that um, I always, you know, with my children, when they started shooting a few years ago, I got a game book for them each. And I wrote in the front, the little homily. And the first thing I said is, when you go shooting, the most important thing is to make sure your host has a good day, i.e. you have got to be a good guest. You have got to be good fun. You've got to be life and soul of the party. You've got to make sure your host is just having a laugh. So I would... Apart from, you know, my children who are great fun to shoot with and maybe some brothers, you know, I would get, you know, seven friends who work to that principle that they are there to make my life, my day good fun. I would never put myself at the middle of the line. You know, I just don't, I don't enjoy that. I like going on the edge. I mean, there is an adage that I think David Hitchings at Gerson Dan came up with that shooting your own, shooting your birds is a bit like kissing your sister. Even though I don't have a sister, I can sort of imagine what the, uh, what the sentiment is like. So, you know, I feel a bit guilty being in the middle of the line on my own, my own shoot, you know, shooting lots of birds. Um, I love being on the edge, you know, so I can watch what others are doing, but still pick off, the ones that have irritated me all season by trying to squeeze out the side. That's what I, that, that's what I love. And so really, yeah, that, you know, it's not particularly imaginative. It's not very different, but, you know, it, I, you know, I've thought about this quite a lot. Whenever I've listened to your podcast and you've had, you know, others giving, you know, either the, you know, of, you know, saying this, I've thought, 
I thought quite long and hard. And uh, and I, that's exactly where I come back to. There is just nothing nicer than shooting, you know, with the, you know, the keepers all knowing it's a special day, the pickers up, the game cart guys, just everybody, you know, with a smile, just, you know, wanting everyone to, to have a laugh. You know, I just can't think of any nicer way to spend a day. Here, here. And what a great piece of advice as well for a young gun. I love that. Yeah. I'm going to remember that. Yeah, not just a young gun, George. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think there are quite a few old guns who could learn that. Well, yes. <laughs> it, it's so good. We're, we're on about we're on about two thirds to one third. Two thirds of people who've chosen the shoot that they actually just do at home or most often as their desert island shooting, which is so lovely because it means that the best is what you've kind of already got. And then you've, you've got the other third who go absolutely ridiculous, which is also good fun to listen to, uh, but, but uh, lovely. <laughs> yeah, Barney, thank you so much for joining us. It has been really interesting. And as I said at the top of the show, uh, you know, this is a subject really dear to my heart and it's been really great having you on to talk about it. I hope that everybody who's been listening has enjoyed it as well. And that those people who haven't been out on a proper partridge day feel inspired to go and do so and and give the partridge the love that I think it deserves. So before we go, as per usual, there's one final reminder that you can get your hands on a pair of the very exclusive Guns on Pegs podcast shooting sock garters by sending us your shooting dilemmas for us to resolve or by getting in touch to let us know where you've been listening or by sending us your unpopular opinions. Just send us an email to pod at gunsonpegs.com and if we read it out in the next episode, We'll send you some garters. We'll be back in a couple of weeks' time with another episode. Uh, Until then, thanks very much for listening and goodbye. (laughs) 